Today's guest is Itamar Turner-Trowing, author at codewithoutrules.com. Itamar has worked with tech startups, including ITA, which is now Google Flights, and he's also been a tremendous open source core contributor on the Python Twisted framework. We sat down last week to talk about his new ebook called The Programmer's Guide to a Sane Workweek. Let's check it out. Welcome all. Uh, Max is the accidental engineer here. Today we have the pleasure of Itamar Turner Troring joining us. Welcome, Itamar. Hi, great to be here. So, Itamar is in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I myself am in Berkeley, California. Um, we're fortunate to be able to be talking together <laughs> this morning, uh, thanks to the internet. Uh, uh, Itamar is a is a great guest to have on. Uh, he's been uh, writing software for over twenty years. Um, he's an author of a really great blog, uh, also an ebook. Uh, the blog called Code Without Rules. Uh, Itamar, do you mind sharing a little bit about uh, what you write about on Code Without Rules? There's a lot of blogging about specific technologies and programming techniques, and you know that's all really useful and really helpful. But I feel like there's a lot of skills that you need as a programmer that and in your career, which is sort of a different thing, but they overlap, uh, which are not as obvious of a skill, but you still need it. And they get talked about less because once you're experienced enough, you sort of do these things automatically. You have these attitudes, you have these skills, you have the right mindset. And because, like, and uh, there's a thing called the expert blind spot where you can't, you, you, it's so easy for you that you don't realize it's a thing. And so I try to talk about these sort of skills and attitudes that uh, are obvious to experienced programmers, but not necessarily obvious to less experienced programmers. So one of your blog posts that's my favorite is called Less Stress, More Productivity. Why working fewer hours is better for you and your employer. <laughs> and I thought it would be a, a great topic to talk about, uh, particularly about how to negotiate with an employer who you've already set up uh, expectations about how many hours a week you might be working, how late you'll be staying in the office. Uh, do you mind sharing a little bit about the recommendation you give folks about how to dial back the uh, perhaps unreasonable or inefficient uh, hours a week folks are working? So I, I tend to think of it sort of two different sides of the same coin, but it's sort of a, a thing you're doing in both directions. On the one hand, you want to become more productive, and on the other hand, you want to... Uh, set boundaries with your the person like the organization or project or manager and they're sort of two sides of the same coin because the more productive you are the less of an issue it is the less of an issue your working hours are and the flip side is if you're not if, if you're you don't start from the attitude of i'm going to work really really hard for a really long time if you start from the attitude of i need to figure out 
how to do things most efficiently, then that like you end up being more productive. So it's sort of a, this like positive feedback loop where as you're more productive, it's easier to get a saner work week, shorter hours. And if you start from the attitude of your time is valuable, how do I prioritize? Um, you become more productive. Um, so it, it, it it's like two to separate sets of skills that interact and sort of build on each other. One of the topics you write about outside of this specific blog post that I think is very relevant to the less stress part is testing. Um, and I know you've given talks at conferences about testing, but do you mind sharing for our audience how that fits into this uh, lower stress uh, problem? <laughs> yeah, and so I feel like the really, really big picture of like being productive is you're working backwards from your goals and you're trying to figure out what what how do you achieve your goals with um, the least amount of wasted effort uh, and so this sometimes this matches sort of people's natural attitudes to how they should write software but often it, it, it's not quite the same and like there's this uh, you know, uh, path you can go, you often go through as a, as a programmer where you start out and you, you don't really know what you're doing. And so you're writing bad software and you don't necessarily realize it's bad software. Maybe I shouldn't, I've, I've been talking about how you shouldn't say bad software, but you're writing software that doesn't, like, I, 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 I think it's a bad term, so I shouldn't use it. Um, you're writing software that doesn't do what you set out to do, but you, you don't have the experience to necessarily know it. Like you, you've introduced lots of bugs and you don't, necessarily realize that and these are bugs that impact your the goal of the software so that's a problem because software might not work and then as you become more experienced like you, you learn about things like you know automated testing and like the idea of software quality which is another problematic term but so people you know say oh i need to you know i need to write have a hundred percent test coverage and i need to have automated tests for everything and then I, my, my software won't have bugs and then when you get past that, you realize that that isn't always the right answer either. And it, it really does depend on your goals. Uh, and so there are places where uh, you, you need to sort of figure out like uh, what what is the specific situation I'm in and what sort of testing matches a specific situation you're in. And so if you don't, if you're just trying to figure out what a user interface look, is going to look like. There's no point in like spending a lot of time on automated tests. It's actually a waste of time. It's slowing you down because you're going to have to rewrite all the code the next day after you've actually tested it by showing it to a user. And then the user was like, I don't know what's going on here. This user interface is terrible. And so there, there's a form of testing, which is testing that you're even building the right thing at all. And when you're in that phase, there's no point in trying to spend a lot of time on automated tests or like even on working code. Like you're not you're not at the point where you know what it is you're building, and so there's no point in trying to constrain it because uh, automated tests are basically a way to say I don't want this code to change. And if you, you're sure that code is never going to change, that's great. But 
often if you pay attention, you'll realize that this code is very definitely going to be changing. It's going to be changing a lot. And then the automated tests are just waste. Like it's just effort. You're, you're going to have to rewrite those tests over and over and over again. Uh, and so figuring out like not having these sort of absolutes of high quality software means you have 100% automated test coverage or, you know, flip side, another, like you can go in the opposite direction of, I don't need automated tests because, you know, we have to ship fast, but if you ship fast, I think that is not, is going to destroy users' data. That's not great either. And so you need to, like it's basically about understanding what you need to do in a specific situation rather than having these absolute standards. Uh, and, you know, it, this takes a slightly different attitude than, uh, and it takes experience and it, it takes thinking explicitly about what you're trying to achieve rather than just having these sort of automatic roles that you follow all the time. Got it. Got it. So many, many folks aren't, the hours aren't stacking up in their work week from writing tests, perhaps. Uh, many of them are being uh, pulled into meetings. Uh, you me you mentioned this in your blog post about um, being brought into meetings that people don't need to be at uh, and how to converse about it with your manager, how to, how to negotiate with your manager about uh, why maybe you shouldn't be in meetings. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about what you meant by that? Sure. So negotiation is, is a something of a job skill uh, in terms of being a programmer, but even more so it's a job skill in terms of your career, right? You, you are going to, at some point, if you, if, you're, if you have a job offer, you probably want to negotiate your salary. Uh, if you don't want to be working, like you might want to negotiate, you know, being able to work from home if you have a really long commute, that kind of thing. And the problem with these sort of negotiations is that they're really, they're, they're high stakes and negotiation is stressful. Like at one point I negotiated a shorter work week after getting a job offer. And it's like, it's an adrenaline, adrenaline rush. Like it's, 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 it's scary to ask for things. And so one way you can deal with that um, is by practicing, like just negotiating much smaller things on an ongoing basis. Uh, and then because it's lower stake negotiations, it's, it's, you know, you can deal better with the stress and if it doesn't work out, that's fine because, you know, it's just, um, you know, it was just a small thing. So worst case, you didn't get what you wanted. And so meetings are a, like a good negotiation practice because like in many jobs, you just have these meetings where honestly, they're not that useful or they're not that useful for you. And so it, it's a great, like if you can negotiate like with your manager and say, hey, I probably don't have to go to this meeting and here's why, then you, it frees up time and also you get to practice this skill. Uh, and, and so and I'm, I'm pretty positive you're not telling people don't attend any meetings. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, the, yeah. yeah, so part of negotiating is understanding what the other side of the negotiating wants. It's like, why does your manager want you to be in this meeting? Uh, and sometimes it's, and, and if you can figure out a way to, so sometimes you have to be in the meeting because like that you cannot, 
get out of it. Like if something, if, if this is a post-mortem for some disaster, this is not the meeting you want to try to get out of because it, this is about <laughs> making sure disasters don't happen. But there's other meetings where, so let's say the idea is you need to report to some, to management about uh, something that happened and then there's like five other items in the agenda. You could probably say, hey, why don't I, can I do it at the beginning of the meeting and then I can leave to get back to work? Or can I just come in for that part of the meeting? And when you say get back to work, you're reminding your manager that if you're sitting in the meeting, you're not doing the rest of your job. Or maybe the point of the meeting is to uh, figure out your status on something. And if you know it's going to be ready real soon now, you can just say, you know, I'm going to have this ready tomorrow. Here's my evidence. I don't think we need a meeting. Why don't I just, you know, finish up the work and then we'll, and we can skip it. And so if you can figure out ways to uh, meet the needs of whoever is uh, like whoever is in charge of the meeting or is inviting you to the meeting without a different way, like that's a great negotiation because you're both getting what you want. Uh, but you're still not just saying, sure, I'll do this thing. Instead, you're, you're, you're practicing that skill of trying to work out a better agreement for yourself without that is still acceptable to the other side. I, I agree with all of this. Uh, one of the other added dimensions that makes it tricky to negotiate or to um, argue for or question why not be in a meeting is that there's often an unspoken, unspoken reason for you to attend meetings of, well, you're bolstering your manager's social capital by being in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, often your manager doesn't want to go to the meeting. So uh, one thing I think our audience will be surprised by if they take you tomorrow's advice and start uh, <laughs> actively questioning a little bit more uh, actively whether they need to be in a meeting is that uh, your manager will say, yeah, and I don't need to be either. <laughs> uh, but I think recognizing that there's an element of uh, social and political capital involved with participation in meetings is a healthy way to recognize when a meeting is important or not. For example, like Itamar says, uh, a postmortem about a website downtime event <laughs> is probably not the time to make a, a stand about uh, protecting your time and getting back to the keyboard. Yeah, and... To be fair, it's been uh, I've not been working in larger organizations uh, for a few years now, so it's been a while since uh, I've personally dealt with the sort of like I, th I think basically the larger the organization, uh, the more the political aspects of and this isn't a pejorative, just it's the more people you have, the 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 more like people split up into groups and start thinking about. You know, us versus them, and uh, it just it makes things harder. So, oh, yeah. yeah, the bigger the organization, the more that aspect is important. Yeah, there's a real, real difference in how uh, how organizations uh, skew in terms of how you spend your time as a software engineer, uh, based on how how large by employees or old or revenue or uh, number of customers 
that uh, impacts your average work week for sure. Um, uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you, Itamar, is about your ebook. Uh, do you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about what your ebook is, The Programmer's Guide to Sane Workweek? Yeah, so like I said, the like I feel like productivity and having a sort of not working long hours are are two sides of the same thing. And I know that there's a lot of programmers who like are just overworked and so and or maybe just spending too much time on their job. So it might be, you know, working evenings and uh, weekends, or it might be you have a really long commute back and forth to work, uh, and like there's a lot of research suggesting long commutes just make people really unhappy, uh, or you know, just being in a job situation where like your job is not is sort of taking over your life, and in, in not for everyone, but in many cases. Uh, this is sort of, it's in addition to making you unhappy, it's also like, while it might seem like a good idea to work long hours, is actually counterproductive. Uh, but there are many organizations that don't realize that. And so I wrote this book to help people both get some of the skills to become more productive and to like, you know, learn, like just understand that importance of negotiating and give a few ways to practice it and why, you know, the benefits of like if you uh, live below, live below your means and have some money in the bank, that's a really great way to strengthen your negotiating position. So partly it's a little bit it's about skills, and partly it's about the different ways you can get what to whatever saying work 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 week means to you, because different people want different things in different parts of their life, and depending on your level of experience and where you live and what your skills are, there are different options available to you. So partly I also want to talk about those options. So like. You can just find there's just there's companies that are just a great place to work and you'll work a reasonable number of hours and for some people that's great and some people want remote work and consulting is a very different kind of working but for some people it's a great way to get the time they want. Uh, I've negotiated a shorter, less than full time work week a couple of times, uh, and so th there's different paths you can take and I want to sort of explain to people what their options are and what they need to do to get there. Got it. Got it. I think an interesting topic to touch on is about how come with <laughs> the rise of internet and distributed computing, uh, it's so it's, it's still quite rare to find full-time jobs that allow uh, being a remote employee. Um, so solving this problem of the, the long commute, and that contributing to a long work week. Um, what are some of your pet theories about why uh, remote work isn't more popular than it already is? Uh, well, so partly it's that there are good reasons why uh, people might want you to, to work in person. Uh, I used to work on software for the airline industry. And you had to learn a huge, huge amount about the way airlines do things because they've been using computers since like the first airline reservation system went online in like 1960. Uh, and so they've been, they, they, 
the systems they use and they're just very large organizations. So you just had to learn a huge amount. Like when I started, uh, VPM engineering told me it'd be six months till I was fully productive. Um, and partly because of the business logic and partly because of the code base, but, it, and so being face to face is just massively higher bandwidth. Uh, and it, it, it is, uh, a, it, 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 there are good reasons to say we want everyone to be in the same room. Um, and so like if, if you're in the situation where, where you have a long commute, like in general, it's always easier to, unless you're in a really dysfunctional organization, but if you're sort of happy where you are, it's usually much easier to negotiate better terms once you've been in the job a while because you have all that business knowledge and knowledge of the code base. And it, like it isn't just about replacing your nominal technical skills. It's about your knowledge of the organization and who to talk to in the code base and the business. Um, and so once you've been in a job for a while, it's much easier to say something like, oh, I'd like to work from home for a couple of days, that kind of thing, or switching from being full-time at a company in person to being full-time remote or be switching from full-time to short time to part-time at a company is always much easier than getting it straight out. So uh, the, the first hurdle is uh, easier to get by once you've been in a company for a while. And so I think a lot of people manage it to, to get around these roles by, uh, you know, after after like a year or two saying, or 10 years saying, hey, I want to work from home three days a week. How's and, and they'd rather you do that than leave. The, a different reason that uh, companies don't like remote work. Um, well, so a second reason is uh, a, a really, there's a really important set of skills that aren't really about understanding technology. They're about uh, being able to work independently. And if you're a junior programmer, uh, like if you don't have a lot of experience, you don't necessarily have those skills. Uh, and so it managers want to have those programmers in person because they want to make sure you stay on track. So like knowing when to ask for help uh, is a really important skill. Uh, uh, and if you don't have that skill, then you might like, you know, you're, 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 you might go back and forth between not asking soon enough and then wasting lots of time and asking too soon and not learning as quickly and just generally annoying your manager or lead developer. So if you don't have those skills of working independently, you're, you're much like managers aren't going to want you to work remotely. And so if you can get those skills, and I write about like this asking for help I write about I have a blog post about it, and I write more about these skills in my book. If you have these skills, then it's much easier to get remote work uh, or whatever more flexible or part work from home part-time because your manager knows that they can trust you to actually get the work done. Do you mind uh, sharing what those skills are? Uh, so knowing when to ask for help, as I said, um, being able to uh, come up with a, like, not just be giving exact instructions of what to do, but do the research yourself and propose a solution. Uh, being able to prioritize, to understand, uh, you know, which parts of the work are necessary and which part are nice to have and which part are, eh, we can skip it. 
because uh, th there's always like wh whenever someone gives you a set of requirements, like they tend to conflate all three. And so, you know, everyone, someone says, so someone says we should implement this. If you, I, I could, if you're junior programmer, you'll just go and implement it, and you, you will probably do too much work and not do the right quite quite the right thing unless it's really heavily specified. But if you learn to ask, why are we doing this? Like, what is your goal? What does success look like? Um, then you figure out that, oh, they, they gave you this solution, but really they have an underlying problem. And maybe you can find out a better way of doing that, solving that problem than the solution they proposed. Uh, or you might figure out that, you know, yes, the customer really wants this in two weeks, but really they only need the first couple of features in two weeks and the other two features can happen afterwards. And so if you you have to implement the things in that order, because that way if you run out of time, they've got at least got the features they wanted. So like having learning how to have these conversations of like, why are we doing this? Uh, what are their parameters? What is the underlying problem that's causing this? It uh, is uh, like, was much better. And there is some level of like, you need to understand the technology stack uh, to some extent uh, enough that you can at least answer most, like some of the questions on your own kind of thing. You, you mentioned earlier about uh, a bandwidth component to uh, communication, which is why remote work isn't as common or you kind of earn it through uh, time with an employer. Um, I think I find that so interesting about how there's a component to communication that's bandwidth, meaning the, the throughput of information flowing between you and the person you're communicating with. And then there's another dimension to this, which is latency. So the delay between when you say something and when it's received and that stuff definitely breaks down as you go remote, um, Definitely latency with communicating over email versus instant message in contrast to swiveling your chair around and saying, hi, Itamar. <laughs> um, but those two dimensions are, are super interesting to uh, keep in mind if you do move to remote or even work from home days during your work week. Uh, what you're really missing out on is often latency uh, where you're unreachable by Slack, by your manager or your coworkers. And uh, the negative side effects of that, not just for the business, but for your reputation inside of the business are, are very expensive. Um, and uh, all of the things you were just mentioning here as uh, skills to develop in your book are super important for uh, preventing <laughs> loss of public image with your employer uh, that I totally agree with. I've observed, I've committed grave sins myself in my employment career so far. Um, but yeah, all of this advice you're sharing with people uh, is just freaking priceless. <laughs> it, it's also about uh, being able to connect to people. Uh, like it's about having better empathy. It's much like, you know, don't read the comments is a thing people tell you about the internet and probably a lot of people who are writing the comments you don't want to read are probably much nicer if you meet them in person. Absolutely. Uh, and so it, it, 
you it's much harder to build a emotional connection with someone and to understand where they're coming from to think like to not just assume the worst uh if you interact them with the person and so like this is why a lot of even a lot of remote only companies still try to meet once or twice a year because like it that face-to-face connection like gets you a very different sense of what a person's like and so and like text only communication is is sort of the worst at this like audio and video are better because there's a lot of uh you know body language and uh just not like you know our our brains aren't really designed to turn a series of text comments into a a like yes is a real human being and i need to um you know think of them as a person uh instead of just this little text thing that's emitting text like you just have a lot more empathy if you actually meet someone in person and so if you're not in that situation it's important to compensate for that and, and, and say i'm probably going like explicitly try to give people more benefit of the doubt and try if if you find yourself if you find it a uh, text conversation being frustrating switching to audio or video can actually help a lot absolutely yeah uh, escalating from text to video if you're remote is is a <laughs> critical skill to recognize when that might make a difference i mean all of us have been in a situation where we're asked why is it not done yet <laughs> And there's a huge amount of information that needs to be conveyed about uh, your 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 estimation, basically. So a lot of software development and and deadline delivery dates uh, revolve around estimating. And uh, people can communicate a lot better about uncertainty uh, through body language than through text. I mean, yeah. it's hard to say, I will get this done today with a 20% probability over, you know, your instant messenger. <laughs> but if you're sitting next to somebody, um, they can they can tell how much it's distressing you. Uh, they can tell uh, where else there are uh, blockers on your, um, or they can tell to ask that they should be asking about blockers that might be inhibiting you from getting whatever it is you need done by the end of the day. So. When communicating, when humans communicate about uncertainty, that's the subtleties are uh, really, really uh, lacking <laughs> over text communication. Yeah, and I guess there's uh, going back to the sort of overarching question. A, a third reason that companies don't like things like working from home or remote work is uh, this. Uh, much more negative attitude of valuing uh, surveillance over actual output. And similar things result in people being encouraged to work long hours. Uh, If you don't have a good sense of what the output is like, uh, it's very easy for a manager to fall into the trap of, I can't measure outputs, I'm gonna measure like how many hours you're sitting in your chair. Uh, and this is usually very counterproductive. Uh, I think the most uh, egregious example I know of is the short hoe, uh, which is an agriculture implement that um, 
like field workers in California used to be required to use the short hoe and like to dig up lettuce and stuff. And it was like, it, it led to a really, really high injury rate. It was not ergonomic at all. Uh, but the, the farm, like the, the people who ran the farms liked it because it was very easy to see if someone was working. <laughs> and so there was like a bunch of like United farm workers, like spent a bunch of time like on striking and campaigning and there was some legal lawsuits and eventually they, they got banned and output went up like according to the CEO of at least one lettuce company like and there was a lot less injuries when they switched to long hoe and this is a sort of general problem where like it's very easy for management to fall into the trap of we need to like visibility is more of like of like what people are doing is much more important than what they're like the actual output and if that means you force people to work longer hours because you feel like they're going to produce more then they probably won't because like if you work if you're working longer hours you're going to be more tired you're going to make more mistakes like people can't actually um like so there, there's if, limits if, to how long people can work if butts and seats and number of hours a week worked is 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 the the poor man poor manager's metric of productivity what are what are some better ones that uh, our audience can uh, use in communicating with their managers about how to better measure their productivity i I mean, in some cases, this is sort of pathological, and so it, it's more along the lines of time to find a new job. Uh, <laughs> For sure. But, uh, but, and you can also do things like, you know, you went home and you ran a batch script from home. You can make sure your manager knows about it. And so now you, you know, look, you're demonstrating extra work you've done. You shouldn't lie, but like if you've done it, you may as well mention it. Yeah, lying is a bad idea. Um, but uh, in in if it's more, uh, if it's not a pathological case, uh, it's you know make it very clear, like you know this is where productive like you know ha having the right attitude to pro to productivity like productivity isn't about writing lots of code, right? There's a limit to how much code you can write and it varies person by person and so on. But you, you, when, you're, when you're trying to do as a programmer is not to write code. Like the best programmer in the world would come into work, like sit in a chair for an hour and think and say, aha, and here's how we can do it. And they would, you know, click two buttons, everything would work and they'd be done and they'd go home, right? And, and no one can actually do that, but like the the, you know, the software is in some sense a liability because you have to maintain it. Like the, it's the, whatever the outcomes are, like the thing that you're enabling is what matters. And so if you can sort of internalize that attitude of, um, I'm trying, like really figuring out what the goals are, making sure, making clear that you understand them and then working towards that and then explaining how you're, what you're doing is going to help meet those goals. Uh, like it, it makes it clear. Like if you just said like, uh, 
I went off and write a bunch of tests. Well, so you like, I mean, that sounds nice, but is it actually valuable? If you said, you know, if we get this particular part of the code wrong, it's going to uh, have this, like, it'll be really expensive for the company because it'll destroy all our orders or whatever. And so this particular part is extremely critical to get right. And so I'm making really sure that uh, it stays within the right parameters. Then you're explaining what you're doing in a way that ties into the uh, the goals of whatever your project or organization are. And if you can't explain that, then why what you're doing actually helps the company's or project's goals then, or the user's goals, then maybe you should reconsider what you're doing. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I mean, one, of the, one of the common hangups that people uh, end up encountering, especially with remote work, is in code review, uh, getting challenged about, oh, you don't have enough tests, or, oh, there's a non-business logic problem to your code. Um, one, of, one of the things that uh, we talked about earlier about uh, <laughs> bandwidth and latency of communication is that um, talk, talk, trying to understand people's real um, uh, amount of caring <laughs> of their opinion in giving a, a code review response uh, is, is harder to do remote. So for example, um, one of the one of the other sources of uh, one one of the things that might contribute to a longer work week is <laughs> coworkers who uh, provide cr critical, uh, hoping to be constructive feedback about maybe code you're trying to merge into your company's code base. Um, but really, it's uh, it's they're artificial points of feedback and it slows you down. Um, do you have any Do you have any tips for people who uh, are in jobs with coworkers who often give somewhat superficial uh, feedback about uh, in code reviews and, and slow slow your slow you down <laughs> when it comes to uh, getting your stuff done? I mean, telling your your manager you didn't get something done because you didn't conform to your team's uh, style <laughs> style guidelines. Yeah, is similarly not a very not a very valid excuse. So, for people whose work weeks kind of creep up and productivity creeps down due to um, uh, poor code review process uh, or or hangups about um, non critical things, do you have any advice for people about how to handle that situation? Uh, so this is in some sense a. Uh organizational problem because uh, you know this is probably affecting everyone so it's not just an individual problem and so in, to some extent it's about trying to improve the code review process and try to improve the organizational process and so it starts verging into negotiation um, and so one thing is you can try to so one part one useful thing is in code reviews is to make sure you require that all code reviews, when you give a list of bullet points, are things like, this must be done versus, I'm not super happy with this, but I'm okay with it going forward. Like so, And always having a, a you know clear next step at the end of the code review. And I think Twisted pro so open source project used to have this problem with code reviews and 
added this policy, and I think it helped a lot, where you say, these three items must be fixed before proceeding. And these are sort of, eh, so, but making clear the difference between blockers versus, I'm not super happy, but okay. Uh, and, and then having a clear either, yes, you can merge it after you fix these, or please resubmit for review. Having those two options and forcing people to be explicit about it is really helpful because like, you can't always tell the difference between uh, those two things, and so you might resubmit it for review, and like, you know, it might slow things down a lot when the, their actual intention was, once you fix it, you can just go. Uh, so distinguishing, having people distinguish between those things is useful. Uh, automate as much as you can. So there's really no reason code formatting should be a thing you spend any time at all on at this point. There are tools Agreed. for... <laughs> Linting well, or yeah, well, specifically code format. Yeah, not even style. Like the ideal is not style checking. Style checking still requires a human to fix it. Like, I think one of the very few things I like about the Go programming language is they have a coding standard and then they have a tool to reformat and then no one ever talks about it anymore. <laughs> uh, and there are so I, I mostly write in Python. There's a tool for there are tools for Python. Yes, the output won't be quite as nice as if you did it yourself. But like you just configure it, you auto form everything, and you don't ever think about it ever again. And uh, it's just people don't have to spend like having a human being code review for style is just a waste of the human being's time. Agreed. Right? And I, having a person. Things, sorry. I was just gonna say real quick that one of the things I wanted to share with our audience that we didn't, I didn't have an opportunity to mention in the intro, is that Itamar was for a long time a core contributor of the Twisted Python library for asynchronous network uh, coding. And um, that's actually how I, I first met Itamar, was in Boston uh, looking for tech meetups and ended up attending a, uh, a, bug, a bug bash or a, an issue sprint uh, for the Twisted uh, open source library. <laughs> Funny enough. Uh, but back to uh, productivity around code reviews, and how to figure out how to where where your hours are going in your work week? Um, what are what what are some other best practices around uh, quickly uh, iterating on your code so that you don't hit roadblocks, organizational roadblocks, with people questioning uh, whether your code can be merged or not? So partly it's like yeah, having those standards, and the other. Part of it is sort of having a, I mean, again, this this comes into more of a management thing, I feel, where you have a very clear set of parameters for what the project goals are. Uh, and so there are projects where uh, being, you know, having really good error handling, having, uh, being very robust, being very maintainable are very important because you know, you, you, you know this this piece of software is going to be is being maintained for long periods of time. Like a lot of the cost isn't in these kind of projects. A lot of the cost isn't just the initial development. It's ongoing maintenance, uh, support. Uh, so libraries are a very good example where uh, if you're maintaining a software library, like changing API is going to be hard. Like so, it's worth uh, both being sure about your API and like maybe having ways to say this API is experimental, so we allow ourselves 
just to change and play around with it so that we can iterate and experiment uh, without locking ourselves into the first design. Uh, and so in those kinds of projects, uh, the code review like comments saying like, what about this error case? What about you know this API design is problematic? Those code review comments are like they might feel like they're slowing you down, but they're uh, like the long-term costs of having getting that wrong might be like worth worth like it, it might you might still actually want that process. Uh, and in other projects, your goal is to uh, like you might have different kinds of parameters, like you need to ship really quickly because we need, the, the goal here is to like see what users say about our code uh, or, or see if there's any like market results. Uh, or we are, uh, this is actually what I'm encountering at work now where I'm like, you know, trying and developing, I'm implementing uh, algorithms for scientific computing and correctness is not about like the fact that the, the code normally implements a specification is great but the that doesn't tell you if it's correct right correct is like is this like is a dna that came out in the end uh the dna you like that should be there is it the, the actual dna that you're sequencing um mm -hmm. and so like fundamentally um i guess i can go don't want to digress too much. Uh, <laughs> correctness can only be judged by humans, uh, and so uh, you, you you know if your specification is uh, still up in flux, like you want like a lot of the focus should be more on that. Uh, and again, that needs to be set in the organization. Sometimes it's like you, you need to see whether you're meeting your goals or not, and then that's the focus. And then like the code is in some sense throwaway. It's it's the higher level organizational goals that matter. And so you need to make sure everyone's clear that the code is just a way to meet those organizational goals. And and, that, and as a result, these things that, like the code itself is it, like getting the code out quickly is more valuable than other things. Um, and so just to give a concrete example uh, of why getting everyone on board with the organizational goals is important, and how that affects the way you do things. So at one point I was working for a startup where the our previous product wasn't our, our product was not doing well, and we was we obviously needed to change direction, and we needed to raise more money, uh, and so we were basically on a tight deadline. And the co-founders had come up with a idea for a, a new te technology and a new th uh, that we could build that no one was doing at the time. It was a very trendy area, which like Docker was starting to get a lot of traction then. So it's a container storage technology. And so our organizational goal was to demonstrate that we could do something no one else could. And th therefore get enough, you know, interest and enough like buzz that we could get raise more and raise investment money basis of that. And so we built a system where the the goal of the project was someone can go through a tutorial on a web page and ha see something happen that they could were not able no one else could was able to do at the time and so we distributed it as a, a couple of virtual machines uh, because it was a virtual machine 
uh, we didn't have to worry about error handling because network was never going to go down and they were always on your computer. So we could just assume the two virtual machines always had a network connection, so no error handling. Uh, because it was just a tutorial, this was a distributed system, but we didn't have to worry about multiple things happening at once because it was one person uh, running commands on, on their one machine. And so mm -hmm. we basically had a the world's stupidest distributed system by just like having an <laughs> SSH to the virtual machine and run a, a command line tool, which doesn't work for the, the real system. It wouldn't have worked, but since the goal was just demonstration, it didn't matter. Um, there were, and so we spent a lot more time on manual testing of that one tutorial than we did on writing automated tests. Uh, because that was the thing that mattered. Like, you know, there's a lot of edge cases that we knew were not going to work, but it didn't matter because it was just that one tutorial. Mm -hmm. And that worked. Uh, we got like, you know, we got a, a bunch of buzz. Uh, there was one company that started building a prototype using this version of the software, which was terrifying to us because we were very explicit. You cannot use it for anything. <laughs> but it was a good enough demo that they were like, okay, we, we trust you'll turn into a real thing. And we managed to raise money. And then we basically rewrote the whole thing from scratch as a real piece of software. And that meant like it had, it was a distributed system with a server and an API and, you know, there's lots of error handling and like, you know, very stringent testing and um, not just a command line tool. There was actually API and API documentation and like it took us like a much larger team and much more time to build. But at that point, it was, a, it was a fundamentally different goal because the goal was to build something people could use in production, as opposed to here's a tutorial you can walk through. And so, so nominally the same product, but like a fundamentally different set of goals and a fun fundamentally different architecture and standards and means. So under certain circumstances, manual tests are, are the acceptance tests of whether your software is working or not. In, in uh, many circumstances, use. actually. Yeah, because... in fact, perhaps all as software is being made for people, <laughs> usually. Yeah. Well, and like it's worth realizing that automated tests cannot tell you that your software is correct because the software does not understand what your software is doing. All, all an automated test does is tell you that for one set of inputs, you always get the same output. So it's telling you that it's consistent, operating consistently, which is a really useful thing in many circumstances but it may be operating consistently wrong, right? It may be you implemented the wrong thing. Uh, it may be you uh, may be unusable when a human being actually interacts with it. It may be that uh, your specification specification is wrong. It may be that your test is encoding that divergence in the specification. So fundamentally you need a human being to think through whether something is correct or not. Uh, and that might mean, you know, a human being doing manual testing. It might mean code review, like someone who doesn't understand your algorithm going and reading through it and asking you, what, why are you doing that? Uh, I, I recently took, uh, translated some code into an equation so I could, in mathematical equation, so I could walk through it with one of the scientists. And um, so I ended up with like 10 lines of math equations, mathematical equations. And, uh, you know, in two different points, he's like, why, what? And I'm like, oh, I didn't write that down correctly. Let me fix that. But like that, that's a, 
you know, 10 lines and I had a 20% error rate just transcribing from code to math. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not, and I understood the algorithm. Like once you pointed out, it's like, oh, I, I wrote that down wrong. And so mm -hmm. there's just this, you, you know, there's this baseline error, error rate you're, everyone's going to have. And the fact that your automated test, like tell you're giving consistent results, doesn't, you may be getting consistent results of not what you intended to write. Uh, so you need that so human insight. We're coming up on an hour here. I, one of the things I would like to ask you is: it, Have I? Have I? Are there any things that you wish I had had asked, or um, or topics that we should have covered? Uh, I guess going back to the idea like the, like you know the, the two phases of productivity and, and working long hours um like just there's a whole bunch of research like going back at least 100 years suggesting that uh working long hours is uh reduces people's productivity Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I suspect that if you, uh, like you're doing two different sets of things, just like if you're programming and, you know, doing some other completely different thing, that's not the case, but, uh, in general, uh, it, it, it's sort of like, it, it, it's not just that it, you, you don't produce less, you actually produce worse, uh, like the the sort of the, often the best way to solve a problem is just to say okay it's 5 p.m. I'm stuck I'm gonna go home and then you come in the next day in the morning and you just figure it out in five minutes uh, <laughs> and so just having that yeah having that mind shift I think is the most important thing that I, I can most important point I want to try to convey is just uh, Working hard is, is is important, but like you, you need like you're a human being. You need to like understand the limits of your body. You need to understand the limits of your cognitive abilities and compensate in various ways, like code review and tests. And you need to uh, realize that and you know be cognizant of your emotional state and you know, be cognizant of the emotional state of other people and what they're feeling. And like, you know, software is about, you know, writing stuff for a computer, but in the end we're, we're, we're people and we need to, uh, and we're working for people and with people and we need to remember that and both have, like understand yourself as a person, other people as a person and the, you're not a machine. You're not like in the end, the machines are just, a thing we're using to compensate for our own our own limits as humans, and in order to serve our own human needs, and you know those human needs are are much are and then much more important than the actual software. Agreed. <laughs> so um, I want to plug your book one more time and your website. Um, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, Thanks for having uh, me. The books, the absolutely the programmer's guide to a sane work week. Um, I'll include links in the show notes. Uh, if you guys are curious about Ichimaru's blog, 
uh, codewithoutrules.com. Uh, Itamar, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Itamar and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.